all kinds of reasons why potentially you want to look be in the market for buying something and there's opportunities to sell right now so if you are tired if you want to go do something different if you just think that maybe you're that hamster on the wheel and you're just going around and around and around and you're just not doing anything fun anymore then you know that's your opportunity to go look there's always opportunities out there but right now there's an immense amount of opportunities welcome to the promo kitchen podcast we are here as part of our series looking into mergers and acquisitions and growth and scale with a very special guest today it is bridget smith who is the chief project officer at zazzle and has been operating as the ceo of boundless for the past year and a half and so we're quite excited having her as a guest because she is constantly part of an acquisition of Boundless from a private equity firm. And so we're excited to talk to her about that because our initial conversation was just the acquisition of Boundless by Zazzle. So she's giving us the big picture view. So today joining myself, Kate Plummer, a chef at Promo Kitchen, and Andrea Pereira, sous chef at Promo Kitchen, is Bridget Smith. So welcome, Bridget. Well, thank you very much. We're so pleased to have you. So why don't you just give us a little bit of background? Tell us about yourself and how you came to be at Boundless and your role there. Okay, I could go back to the beginnings of time, but I don't think that will serve anybody <laughs> and it would be boring. So I will say that after I graduated from school, I did graduate with an accounting degree and I continued to work in public accounting until I got my CPA. And then I decided at that point, it was much more fun. I felt it would be much more fun, let's put it that way, to be a part of the business rather than just audit the business or do accounting for outside the business. So I ran into this small little company, wonderful little company that grew a bit. It's called Apple Computer and spent about 13 years there and got a great education on being inside the businesses, seeing the ups and downs, really what drove the business from the inside and what could deteriorate a business because it did go through all of those ups and downs during the time period that I was there. And after that, I decided I wanted to do test doing smaller companies. So I kind of went back and forth between small companies, big companies like Intuit after that and so on until I found this little company and it really truly was a startup startup called Zazzle. And Zazzle was on the cusp, I would say, of figuring out what its mission statement was going to be, what its values were going to be, and everything else when I joined there. And I was the CFO at the time. I spent quite a few years as CFO before I decided I was kind of bored of being, again, when you're CFO, you do drive a lot of components of the business, but you're also responsible for all of the reporting, all of the accounting, all of everything else. So again, I was kind of keeping score rather than making the score happen in my mind. So at that point, I talked to the CEO and I was ready to leave the company to go do something else. And he suggested that I go to Europe and open our international headquarters and drive that the business from there. So I gave up the CFO role and I went to Ireland for a while, for a year and a half, to set up the company, uh, kind of understand what the business was going to be on an international basis, kind of to understand what it would be like to be an international company. And all of that was, again, great learning experience. 
and just reminded me again of how I really love driving business, understanding business, understanding what all the touch points are that can make things good or make things not so good. So when I came back to the U.S., that's when I started doing projects for the CEO. And one of those happened to be looking at Boundless and trying to figure out, was that a good acquisition for us? And actually, I would say that that's one of the things that you guys are going to ask me about and should ask me about is how much do you look at a company before you buy it? And I think we understood some of the things that were great about Boundless. And we thought it made so much sense to have a promotional products company that dealt with business merge with a personalization business like Zazzle and how we could get leverage, not only from the supply chain, but also, you know, the logistics of shipping and everything else. And that would just make the model so much less expensive because you could leverage it across these two kinds of businesses. What we didn't understand and we tried to fix in so many ways, or not fix, it wasn't a fix, but tried to integrate is the fact that there's totally different models between the two. Zazzle is everything's done online. You as the customer come to the website, you order what you want. Nobody really interacts with you. It goes into our system. It goes to our manufacturing and it gets delivered to you. And then, of course, you know, if you don't like what you get, sure, you deal with customer support and you deal with some of those things down the line. But it's a hands-off model for the most part with the customer. So what you have to do, you have a website that you have to have a user interface that makes it easy to use. It has to be friendly. It has to be welcoming in so many ways that you really want to continue to go back to Zazzle because that's how that model is developed. With Boundless, it's totally different in that there's salespeople that are in the middle. And rightly so, because when you look at that customer, which is usually a large customer, they want to take the risk out of buying stuff. They want somebody else to have dealt with all of the issues that could potentially come up, give you all the options that you may have in front of you, help you understand how those products can actually promote their businesses even more. So you really need that go-between, that person in between, that company in between in order to get the customers to feel comfortable with you, to have long-term relationships. And I will say relationships because I really do think Boundless is a relationship business and the trust and the confidence in order to do that. I mean, that's why people, even you know, regular folks on the street will hire event planners for their wedding because they don't want to deal with the risk of what could go wrong. They want somebody else who's tried and true, done it before to do that. So the businesses on the surface, even though they look like they should go together really well, they didn't match up the way we had hoped. And we did try in so many ways. We even tried to do a Zazzle Live for Business where it was really boundless that was there. And customers just didn't feel the confidence that they needed in that. They really wanted somebody to handhold them all along the way of the purchase. That's so interesting because, like you said, on paper, these two businesses totally go well together. How deep into the acquisition were you when you were just like, this is where they're starting to clash? And you said the model of Zazzle is hands-on, while the model of Boundless is hand-holding. 
And that just struck me as like, oh, yeah, that's completely like right down to the core to it. So when did you notice the split? I would say probably after the first year. And that's when there was this going on between Zazzle and Boundless. And most people, you know, probably wouldn't even understand that it didn't affect the businesses. So that was good. It was just more that Boundless, they have great technology too. They have, I would say, an interactive system, portals and such that could be created for each of their customers separately and so on that has its own kind of technology. Zazzle's technology is totally different. So when Boundless came in, I think the anticipation was that they would be able to take all of Zazzle's technology and put it on their platform and then be able to utilize it in a certain way. But you can't do that because then all of a sudden you're creating conflict within the two companies because you're going to have finger pointing saying, they stole my customers because all of a sudden, you know, you've got sales affiliates out there that maybe won't be utilized as much because now their customers feel like they can come on and, you know, Boundless would have taken the technology and made it for large purchases, for large organizational purchases and so on. And so we started getting into a lot of that. And that was probably after the first year and a half we were realizing that. I think that that's one of the most powerful moments in business is knowing when to say, this isn't working. Let's walk away. It's not even the desire to be right. It's the desire to be successful, the desire to have something work and have your brainchild meet all of your hopes and dreams. And I think that that's so powerful. So I just want to make sure I understand, Bridget, it was the clash of technology versus a salesperson feeling needed. And that's kind of what was the driving factor in deciding these technologies can't merge and we should step back and let them work independently. Is that what it was? Yeah. I mean, we didn't work entirely independently. There was some leverage on the supply chain side. We did accomplish that. We're still setting up two separate companies. And if you can't leverage the companies in some way, shape, or form, why do you have them separate anyway? I mean, why did you decide to buy them? Because you're hoping that you're creating additional value for each of the companies by having them merge, but we weren't. Another thing, you know, we thought with all of this content that Sazzle had, we have great partners, you know, with Disney and Marvel and Star Wars and everything else, you know, we thought, well, certainly tons of those large organizations would love to utilize this content in promotional products or something else. I mean, I know they have their own branding that they do, but they also probably for their employees, for some of their best customers, they probably would want to do some of that. But our partners wouldn't allow it. You know, they said, no, 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 we've licensed to Zazzle. You can't take it and give it to Boundless at this point. We don't know Boundless. We don't trust Boundless. I mean, we spent years and years and years, especially Disney, when you think of the branding that it has, getting them to agree that we would take care of their baby. And no, we just couldn't get that either. You know, we thought sports teams, we thought that that would be huge, you know, to take across to the two companies. You have to start from scratch. It's like you're negotiating a whole entire new deal again. And that is not an inexpensive thing to do. Yeah, and a totally different market too on that one. Yeah. So as many of our listeners know, you've changed hands at this point. So Boundless was recently acquired by an affiliate of Point Rider Capital and Treaty Out Equity. 
And so what was your role in the acquisition? And when did that process start where you're kind of like, these are two separate companies, they're not being leveraged for each other properly? When did you get to that point? And what was your role in that? I would say that there were a lot of other focus issues going on at both companies at the time. And you think about it for a while and then you say, okay, well, you know, at least they're profitable. Meeting boundless and Zazzle saying we're profitable. So maybe it's okay. We'll just continue on with that. But then when you started realizing some of the focus was really being taken from one company to another and vice versa, that maybe each company wasn't really creating the value that they needed to in their own walls. So that's when you start saying, well, we can't let these be a distraction anymore. If each company is going to really get to the best value that it possibly can, then they have to have 100% focus on that business and they can't be distracted in other ways. So I would say that we came to that conclusion about two years ago and we started figuring out what would make sense in order to break things apart. And then the pandemic happened. And then, you know, it changed a lot of people's worlds. (laughs) But in this respect, it was like, okay, both companies have to hunker down and figure out how they're going to survive this. And that's when we talked about you have to pivot and you have to create something that is being needed, fill that void of a need. And that really happened to be PPE stuff. We know there were puzzles that were really big at Zazzle. There were all kinds of sanitizing your hands. So you put out the hand sanitizer specialties and things like that, the masking. And that really was a major distraction for both companies for nine months, at least. (laughs) And then, you know, things started changing and some sense of normalcy has come about. And that's when we really said, okay, you know what, let's let both companies see what they can do on their own. And that's when we went to market with Boundless. So it's been percolating in the back of your mind for years. And then we were distracted by the pandemic. When did it actually go to market? When did that happen? I would say that we probably were serious in October of last year. So then it happened in the span of like six to eight months. And how does that relate in terms of a fast or a slow acquisition? That would be, I would say, a fast acquisition, particularly given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. When you think about other companies that would be potential acquirers of any company having to deal with their own issues, the pandemic. But The reason why I would say it's fast is because I think there are companies out there that were looking for gems because there were some companies that flourished during this time and they had money to spend. They had cash that they had to put to work. And so they were looking for opportunities. And that's why I think I would call it fast. I have a question about selling to private equity. Of Conversations that have come up and the research that I've done is that It's not a case of a supplier buying another supplier or a distributor buying another supplier where you're kind of taking the same skill set and combining them. What does it mean to be bought by private equity? What did they look for in your company? What sort of things do they care about and what did they bring to the table on this? The interesting thing about 
that question with regard to this transaction was that Treaty Oak had an individual that was really heading up their M&A that was a part of the ownership of Boundless when we acquired Boundless. He was with a different equity firm at the time. So he said in the back of his mind, he always felt like they sold too soon with Boundless, that he saw so much potential in Boundless. And he's always had this dream that one day he could get involved in that business again because he truly loved it. And so he actually came to the table and he was a compelling speaker when it came to how motivated he could be by having this transaction go in and how he really wanted a hands-on role in it because he saw so much opportunity and he'd been thinking about it for 10 years on and on and on. So I was actually more drawn to that. There were some companies that came to the table that were hoping to acquire and merge with what they had. And I was more interested in Pretty Oak's perspective because, first of all, when you're selling a company, you carry a lot of guilt with it because it didn't accomplish what you had hoped it had when you first acquired it. And secondly, you get close to individuals in that company. Particularly in my case, I felt very close to the management team. And when you do a merger, oftentimes that management team is the first groups that are taken out because they're redundant. And then you go down through the ranks and you've got a lot of people that are taken out because their jobs are redundant. And when you've got the exact same company buying you as you are the same type of company, then you are going to have a lot of folks that are let go in an acquisition. And when you looked at this investment house coming in and buying it and knowing a lot about the business and feeling comfortable that they could do a lot of changes to make things better, you realize that they don't have anybody in any of those positions. And so the people, for the most part, are protected. You know, they've got their jobs as long as they're doing a good job, which clearly everybody at Boundless did a great job because they kept afloat. They brought their profits back. They really recovered. And that takes leadership. That takes folks being committed to their roles. And so I just felt really good about the fact that if we could get that transaction to happen, that the employees would be pretty safe. And that was important to me. Very exciting. I think, too, something that's really interesting, Bridget, is even being an affiliate of Boundless. We didn't know any of this was happening. I'm curious as to why it's so hush-hush, the whole process. Why do you use NDAs, especially when you are seeking another entity to come in? Why would it not just be like putting a for sale sign saying, hey, we just don't think it's the right business fit. Would you be interested? There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, if the rumor starts that the company's for sale, No matter how often you tell them, it's not because the company's failing. The internal folks within the company feel like, oh, we must be in trouble. It's time for me to go get another job. So all of a sudden you've got a company, but you don't have any employees left because everybody is jumping ship because they're worried about the fact that the company's not doing well and they're going to lose their job anyway. So they'd rather take something so they're safe. So that's huge. That's number one. Number two, When I mentioned that there were some competitors of Boundless that were looking to buy the company, 
the last thing you want to do is give them full open kimono to all of your books, all of your customers, everything else, all of your top-notch affiliates. They come in, they see the whole business, and now they don't need to buy it. They just go out and they start recruiting. They start understanding what your pricing is even to some of your customers, and you really got to have your NDAs in place where you can go after them if, in fact, they go and they try to completely destroy your business afterwards. So that's another huge reason. And then also important is the fact that you don't want to distract anybody in the company, because especially when you're coming out of a tough year, you want them to stay focused and do their job and not be second guessing what's going on in corporate headquarters about the job. And in reality, I think that we did a great job in the fact that I don't think a lot is going to change internally, like the values or anything else of the company, because the company still exists. It's still boundless. It's not a division of XYZ company. You know, it's the company. It's the number one focus for everybody. I think it's interesting that you said the word distraction multiple times now. That's something that we can really, I think, take away from this. So Bridget, as a company that is looking to put their organization out there as available for sale or a company that is looking to acquire another organization, how could they learn about opportunities? Well, I think there's actually a couple of literature pieces like real estate magazines that tell you when certain businesses are for sale. Something like a boundless though, that doesn't, well, it does exist actually, but that's not a game I want to play. I don't want to play in that arena. So we actually hired and every investment that I've been in we have an outside firm that we use and they are very good at understanding what's for sale and what's not and what we want to put up for sale. And the reason why I say that is because they're known in whatever industry. It doesn't even matter. They're not specialists in any industry. They're specialists in understanding whether businesses are profitable or not. And they are able to reach out to the network that they have and say, okay, you know, it's kind of one of those backroom conversations. We have a company that we find interesting. We think it would fit in, you know, because they know enough about business. We think it'll fit well into your world. Here's some of the special things about it that we feel are synergistic. Here's some things that maybe will help your business even. And so all of those conversations happen and you target about 20 companies that you really think makes sense. And then you have them go out and do a little bit more within the companies themselves and say, you know, XYZ company, we think you might be interested in a company that we're representing right now. They won't tell you who the company is, but they'll say, these are some of the qualities of the company. These are the things that are good about it. These are things that we think we could provide synergy on and so on. And they're invaluable with the amount of reconnaissance that they can do because they're so connected. If it's a large kind of acquisition and you can afford these guys, they're the ones. And then they also stay through it through the entire purchase because there's always issues that arise where there's conflict between the buyer and the seller. And it's like, you know, the seller saying you're buying it as is and they're coming in, they're saying, well, that, that, and that's wrong. There goes the price. I want to drop, you know. 20% of the price because of X, Y, and Z. So 
these guys represent you and they can be the bad cops without you having to have buyers and sellers get in the conversation and be nasty to each other. Because you don't want that. Nobody wants that. Yeah. One thing that kept coming up in our conversations with people was getting the ego out of it. And you even said like, you know, guilt was part of your process. 2020 was this big year of upheaval. And 2021 is really showing to be this year of people seeking to make change and trying to look at what their next steps are with their company. So I imagine a lot of people are in this state of thinking about a merger, thinking of acquisitions, thinking of buying like complementary businesses or how it works. So having been in the acquisition process, what would be your advice to someone who is thinking about going through this or who is in this right now? Well, I think you mentioned it. You didn't say the words, but you mentioned it and how you described it. People are going through self-reflection. And it's not just self-reflection in their own personal lives. It's within their business lives as well. And if they own companies or if they run companies, they have been thinking about for the last year how they can either make it better or how they're just tired of it. And they want to just let go and go do something else for a while. Because I think the important thing is people are realizing that life is short. Everybody just lost a year of their lives without really making significant progress in either probably their personal life or their business life. And so now they are regrouping and saying, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my life? And I think we're seeing a lot of changes and a lot of people are just, you know, they're giving up and they're saying, I'm just going to go travel for a couple of years and see how I like that. And then when I need money, I'll go back to work. But I think it also has given us an opportunity to say, you know, all that stuff we thought was so important before that we were investing in really didn't move the needle all that much. And so maybe we should take another shot at something else or bringing two companies together could potentially really make us so strong and create a barrier to another company coming in, or we're missing this technology. And so I see it in that company over there. I really want that technology or we need more engineers and I can't go out and recruit them because they don't want to come to a company this small. They want the big companies. So I see that company over there who's got a lot of talent in the engineering side. So I'm going to go buy them because I want those engineers. There's all kinds of reasons why potentially you want to look be in the market for buying something. And there's opportunities to sell right now. So if you are tired, if you want to go do something different, if you just think that maybe you're that hamster on the wheel and you're just going around and around and around and you're just not doing anything fun anymore, then, you know, that's your opportunity to go look. There's always opportunities out there. But right now there's an immense amount of opportunities just because people have gone through that self-reflection and they know they need a change in their life. So I think now is the perfect time. I know it sounds like it's a long time for a buying process between October to when we closed at the end of May, but it's not because when you think of the size of the company involved in being purchased, there's a lot of due diligence that needed to be done. First of all, there was a lot of negotiation just to agree on what was going to be bought and how it was going to be bought, what structure it was going to be bought in. 
I mean, it's not just saying I'm going to buy that company. Sometimes you say, oh, I only want the assets of the company. Oh, I only want the people. Oh, I, I don't really want all this garbage that's hanging out there that I might all of a sudden get sued for because it happened under somebody else's watch. So there's all of that that has to be done. And so it's like your inspectors going in when you buy a house, but it takes a hell of a lot longer because there's so much to be inspected. In that process of inspection, are there any red flags that you have seen time and time again that should really get someone to pause? And maybe some of them are worth having a conversation about. And maybe some of them are just like, you see something and you walk away, you run away. Are there any red flags you could share with us? I would say if there's lawsuits hanging out over that company, you turn around and go away. <laughs> you just don't, <laughs> you don't pursue because first of all, and I'm not talking about the trivial little, you know, lawsuit, but if there's an issue with a customer that, you know, says that it's a baby product and all of a sudden, you know, they're concerned about baby swallowing things or whatever, you know, that kind of lawsuit, you don't want to get near. First of all, because even if you win, you get a bad reputation because you went after an individual, you know, and that's not good either because all of a sudden then your name is tarnished. Your bigger name is tarnished. So I would say that. I would also say, you know, depending upon another kind of lawsuit would be discrimination suit against a company from employees because usually there's something. I'm not talking about, again, a little trivial thing, but if there's a group of individuals that are suing as a group, I would say there's something there and you just don't want to tarnish your name with something like that. Both of those are like systemic things, right? Negligence is a systemic issue. Yeah. Discrimination is a systemic issue. I'm curious, what would be a small issue? I can't think of any small lawsuits. Well, there are, for instance, with Boundless and with Zazzle to some extent too, if a customer feels like their branding was misrepresented. I mean, there's a lawsuit that goes to courts and there's a lawsuit that you settle internally and you say, okay, well, we'll reissue all the product that you bought from us and we'll do it to your liking because we agree. We didn't represent you the way we probably should have. Gotcha. I'm not saying it's trivial to anyone who's doing the suit, yeah. but it's trivial to be able to resolve it without having to go to the courts and having you know, all over public access and so it's on. It's easier. And that's the diligence. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Just kind of zooming out again for private equity money in the promotional products industry in that it's really been boosted probably in the last five to 10 years for everything. So from your viewpoint from Boundless, what are your thoughts on private equity money coming into this industry? And how do you think it will influence consolidation in the future? Do you think it will have a large size impact for everything? I feel a lot of people talk a lot about how this is like this cottage industry that is much bigger than it pretends to be. And now private equity is coming and seeing that there's money to be made here. What do you think it will influence? I think that private equity has always been involved in this industry. I just don't think that it's been publicized very well. Because when you think about it, we bought it from a private equity firm. And that was seven years ago. And when you look at some of the bigger players out there, they also are funded 
or were funded through private equity. So I think it's always been there. I think now, though, is the time when there will be consolidation because I think there's a tremendous amount of cash available to invest right now with, again, a lot of companies not doing super well over the last year. People have pulled money out of the market and have put it into these boutique kind of firms. And they're trying to find places for that money. And they want to pick companies that they at least won't lose everything, right? So when you take a look at promotional products and the fact that businesses are coming back and there should be tremendous growth in the next year or two years, as people start to buy promotional products for the events that they go to again and the hotel industry is coming back and the cruise lines are coming back and all of those are purchasers of products that Thelma sells. So I think that there's an opportunity for growth and I think that there's an opportunity to make money on money. And I believe that there will be consolidation. Do you think there's still space for small companies or independent companies without being affiliated with larger companies? If you find a niche, that's the big gem. If you can find that as a small company, you can do great because then you don't have to deal with all of the politics of being in a larger company and worrying about, I don't want to step on so-and-so's toes. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that because all of a sudden, maybe I won't be thought of the way I would like to be within business. And I don't want to be seen as somebody who's too aggressive in certain areas. So there are certainly a large group of people in this world that would hate it in large companies having to deal with that kind of politics. So I absolutely think that there's places for small companies, probably one person businesses, as long as you can find the sweet spot. And I would say that that exists in promotional products. If you became an expert within a certain industry and you went after everybody and you explained how you can make their business better and really prove it and you know help their business grow in so many ways, that's where the value comes from smaller companies. As a small company, it's really reassuring to hear that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm not sure this is totally related to our conversation, but I'm so interested in this, is that when you opened up Zazzle's international operations in Ireland, as an American going to Ireland, did you sense a culture shift in going from the US to Europe? What was your viewpoint coming into that space? I was a bit naive. I mean, I thought since, you know, they speak English, so <laughs> they must be a lot like us. Um, but Ireland is truly a culture of families, of close-knit families. It was funny because I was talking to one of the people who I became very good friends with when I was there, and I asked her how she had looked at me when I first came. And she said, well, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of Americans and you were pretty much the same way. And I go, well, what does that mean? And she goes, well, you know, you guys, you love your families and everything else, but you tell your friends everything too, because your country's so young that you don't have this huge history of family longevity within a country. And so all of a sudden, everybody knows everything about you guys because you come in and you start sharing. 
where we're very close to best, you know, and we only share the most important things with our family. The other things we'll share with people, but the most important things, they don't go past our family. And so I found it interesting because then I started thinking about it. Yeah, you know, they probably did know about my family long before I knew that they had children and it was different. It was just a different way to communicate with each other. And so in retrospect, I think we also treat business the same way. We start sharing a little too quickly how important we are to their business, (laughs) (laughs) listening more to what their business is about, and then trying to figure out how we can make that better. I think that we just do that as American companies. As my mom used to always say, and I know you've heard this probably a million times too, you're born with two ears and one mouth. You should use them in that ratio. So we need to listen a little bit more before we start telling them how important we are to them and their business. Yeah, that's so interesting too. My sister used to live in Ireland. And so whenever she'd come back and like explain even the differences between Irish and Canadian, I wondered how it worked on a larger scope because so many companies right now are going global. And I think so many people come in thinking, well, we'll do it the same way when so much is needed that's different. Very different. Very different. Yeah. Was there one thing looking back besides the way you sort of came into the market that you wish you kind of knew going into the European market a little bit different? So much of the Irish market is driven by the government. When you think of it, there's a large part of the country that's social by nature. And so I wish, and in the end, I got it right, but I wish I would have started out with going to a few more governmental events, trying to meet some of the royalty within the country, as we would call it, and talking with them and understanding what they felt their needs were. Because I just went in there like a bull in a china shop and started shaking things up. and. It worked out, but it was after a lot of heartache, which I didn't need to cause and I didn't need myself either. (laughs) Oh, well, hindsight is always 20-20, so. (laughs) I do it differently. Let's put it that way. When we think of private equity, we think of these large firms with millions and millions of dollars to invest, right? But really, when you break down private and equity, It just means independent investment, which really could come down to saying, hey, dad, I know you've paid off your house, but I really want to start a business. Would you be comfortable making an investment in me? Right. And the fact that there are so many of those firms that have that kind of private equity, private investment within the industry. And so Do we think that that's going to last? Do we think that those kinds of firms are going to make it in the long run? Or are we seeing such a jump in technology and such a transformation in our workplace culture that it's really going to only be the millions of dollars of investment that can make it in the long run? I do believe that there will continue to be, I mean, they call them angel investors for a reason because they're smaller by nature. A lot of them represent wealthier families, where all of the siblings, all of the relatives invest together. And then there's these new things called SPACs, which I don't know if you guys have followed that. That's become a new investment arm to the point where during the pandemic, the SPACs were investing in 
significant amount of companies. But since the last year, there was no government intervention on that. And now they've put in stipulations or regulations. You know, they didn't want it to turn into the banking industry of 2000 and 2008. So there'll always be these cottage kinds of investment houses. There will be. And when they can't make it in one area, they will figure out, like the SPAC, they will figure out how to turn things around a little bit and create something else in order to be able to do what they want to do. I think there's a tremendous amount of wealth out there still. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending upon your view, it does rest with a small part of the population, unfortunately. But because of that, and I like the idea of these things cropping up because I do want investment in the U.S. in particular, certainly in the world overall. I want investment to happen because I think that's how people get jobs. You know, that's the regular Joe on the street gets a job because somebody did investment that created value within a company or created a company that had value to somebody. So I want those kinds of investments to happen. And I don't want it to be too, too hard, too restrictive and who can get the funding. So I'm not sure that I really answered your question, but I think that it will continue. Let me just say, yes, I think it will continue. Yeah. And I think too, it also speaks to if you are in the position of seeking to grow your business and invest in your business, or if you are considering, do I need to sell in order to get to the next step? It doesn't have to go through a merger or acquisition. It doesn't have to go to giant PE funding. It can be as simple as calling the folks that you know and saying, listen, I've got a great idea. I want to do something. And that is still a form of private equity. That is still a way to grow and scale your business. Yeah. And create jobs and keep doing amazing work. Yeah. Some people are afraid to go to their family, though. It's asking them to risk. Yeah. If it's a great idea then I think that that's the first place you want to go because you want your relatives to be able to participate in the upside that you believe is there. But don't be surprised if they get a little bit concerned when somebody is coming to them with an idea because they're thinking, well, if it's such a great idea, why did they have to come to the family? You know, that's something else that comes out of it too. It can be community, right? It can be community. Well, that's what all the jumpstart stuff is, right? Mm-hmm. It's out there. There's some great ideas. There's some really great ideas. Yeah, I think it's good to know for people that your options aren't limited to just going after these big guys and hoping that you look attractive enough. There's kind of a whole market that kind of spreads. Like one of the conversations we had was that so many people in this industry or in business, period, they come in being really good at one thing and they're having to learn like business 101 of everything. And I think it's really good to sort of think and look at mergers and acquisitions 101 or even growth 101, sort of scaling up. And what does that mean for you? Yeah. So to go back to what your question is now, all of a sudden it's clicking in my brain. There is more money in between what you can get from the banks and what you can get for the large equity firms. There's more money out there in that middle section, far more money in that middle section than there are the other two combined. So. Yeah. You just have to find it. You have to have really that great idea and you have to be able to work hard. 
don't just think just because you're running a company that you don't have to work, that you get to go have all your vacations and, <laughs> you know, do all of that stuff. You're going to work hard if you want it to be a success. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think nobody wants to hear that, but everyone should hear that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to work harder for yourself than you would be for working for somebody else. Yeah. So fascinating. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and being part of this conversation for the Promo Kitchen community. So we really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.